Welcome to the Leading for Good podcast. I'm Elaine Herdman Barker, co-founder of Global Leadership Associates. In this series, we'll be talking with special guests who are transforming leadership. We'll be asking leaders how they tip the world towards the good, learning about ways we can stretch our thinking and discovering so much more about a leader's footprint. With strategic thinkers from all over the world, we'll investigate just what leading for good means today. Welcome to the Leading for Good podcast on risk, fear, and the power of connection. A view from psychiatry with my guest, Dr. Jan Bertel. This is an important heads up. We're having a conversation that covers areas of sensitive nature, including suicide. If you or others around you are affected by any of the topics included in the podcast, please see our show notes for information and resources. I'm joined today by Dr. Jan Bertel. Jan's worked for many years as a consultant medical psychotherapist, psychiatrist, medical manager and educator. She's a fellow and specialist advisor in coaching and mentoring to the Royal College of Psychiatrists here in the UK. And I think it's fair to say that Jan's work is pretty expansive. She supports executives and highly traumatised people find their way forward in life and does great work with unsettled communities, helping them to work through their tensions. Now, today we're going to be drawing on Jan's experience to consider our inner emotional lives, how as leaders we might come to better understand our own fears and vulnerabilities as we take difficult decisions, and how we might better lend support to others as they face into their own struggles. Welcome, Jan. It's great to be chatting with you today. Elaine, thank you so much for inviting me and I've so much enjoyed our conversations over the past few years so it's delightful to continue that and uh, explore things with you. Me too Jan, hearing your insights always reminds me that we are at the end of the day emotional creatures. So Jan, as part of your work as I understand it, it is to help people endure the world, to find ways through some turmoil and hopefully then to thrive. And I've always imagined that psychiatrists working with people who are suffering great personal distress require themselves to have some deep personal resources in order to do this. Is that your experience? And what are those resources? I think that it is really important for psychiatry to have good internal resources and also good external supportive resources as well. So we hope that people, when they come into the profession, will have a strong sense of empathy with patients and compassion. And one of the things that can happen to psychiatrists early in their career, particularly, is they get very involved with patients and caught up in their difficulties. And so there's a process of learning how to take yourself to work. And it's really important that as a psychiatrist, I take myself, my personality to work, but also listen to the patients I work with, so I engage with them, and that I empathise with them. And that, I think, requires also some support and some learning about how to do that. Can you say a bit more about how psychiatrists are helped to take themselves to work? Because that feels really important. 
So, for example, now all psychiatrists in training have to be part of a reflective practice group for a period of time. And they also have to take on patients for psychotherapy. And and a lot of psychiatrists also have personal therapy. People expect to see a lot of patients. And there's something about how you find then some time to think about the interactions. You know, you might leave a room, leave a, a consultation and afterwards feel quite irritated and angry. So it's recognizing that that emotion is happening, thinking about it. Does that belong to the patient? Is it something to do with me? We pick up feelings from other people and we need a space then to digest that. And how does that emotion get digested, as you say? I think a really important concept that it's worth focusing on is emotional labour. This sort of work requires a lot of emotional work and it's really important to recognise it as work and to recognise the importance of refueling it in some way. And one of those ways is to have an ongoing process of reflection, for example, with colleagues, to talk to people about their experiences, of course, in a very confidential setting, needs to be private, it needs to be a safe space to talk. It's really important to help develop those ongoing way, those internal resources so people can draw on them and keep alive and keep fresh in their work. That emotional labour is draining. We mustn't forget that. The preparation work you're describing there, Jan, to be a psychiatrist is intensive. You speak about taking yourself with your personality and emotions to work. And I guess that you also need a healthy dose of courage, because as I understand it, psychiatrists make very difficult decisions about the care of people every day. And I'm imagining that those decisions are threaded with uncertainty because as human beings, we're not easy to get, are we? Uh, And with that uncertainty comes risk. What helps your colleagues deal with this exposure to risk? It's important to think about the, the different areas that psychiatry touches on and obviously work with patients directly is one of those but also there is a role in wider society to help keep society safe and so sometimes psychiatrists have to take very tough decisions for example deciding that a patient is so unwell that they're not able to make decisions in their own best interest and that's a really really tough decision to make nobody wants to do that but it's really important when making decisions like that, to actually weigh up the different information that you have. I certainly remember part of my training to use the mental health act, very uncomfortable, particularly when I did it for the first few times and thought about it long and hard, really. Is this in the person's best interests? You have to weigh up that dynamic very carefully. And I think the conversation about it is useful. That also in the UK system, there have to be two doctors and a social worker that will make the application and all agree to it. So I think it's helpful to have it as independently made decisions, but that is a really difficult one. There's all this preparation that psychiatrists go through. It's an essential part of their job to be bringing themselves, as you say, into the process, to be in conversation, to be part of a support team. And yet, even within that, there are moments, I imagine, in their career when their decisions are questioned. How do they cope with those moments when challenge may occur? Thinking about those moments, really, I suppose, lighter end of that, in a sense, but a worrying end, 
might be something that happened to me recently where a patient didn't turn up for an appointment and they had expressed some suicidal thoughts and I was left with no message from them and you know, waiting for them to arrive on a, a, a video call and they just didn't turn up. And so, you know, you have a huge anxiety. What's happened here? On this occasion, I contacted the person to check they're okay. They said, yes, they'd sent me a message to cancel, but they were fine. So I had a huge moment of relief. But the concern was that this person might have taken their own life. And I think when a suicide occurs, a psychiatrist is often seen as somehow responsible if they are involved in working with the patient. Which you are saying is not the case. We'd have to remember here that many suicides take place where people are not engaged with services. But when they are engaged with services, I think there's often a lot of analysis, investigation, and psychiatrists can feel very, very under pressure and feel that they are made to blame and feel almost that they are responsible for this person who may have made a conscious decision to take their life or who may have been very ill at the time. So we all do what we can to try and prevent those events. But at the same time, it's really important to recognise that individuals want to be autonomous. And so there's a real tension around that decision to detain somebody, trying to assess what risk there might be of harming themselves. You're speaking here of an out-of-ordinary event, something extraordinary. And yet, paradoxically, that's an intrinsic part of a psychiatrist's everyday job. How do they hold themselves and that tension together? In most branches of medicine, for example, you might expect patients to die of their conditions. But somehow in psychiatry, we're expected to keep people alive, although they may die. So that's, you know, it's very, very difficult and people feel quite uncomfortable about that. And of course, we're all there to try and help people and to help people find hope as well is an important part of that. You know, Jan, it's really arresting to hear these challenges, to understand a bit more about the pressures psychiatrists are under. And we'll definitely come back to that pressure and stress. I'd like now, though, if I may, to open up our conversation beyond the field of psychiatry to our everyday world and consider emotions in society. Unfortunately, we've all been acutely aware of the untold numbers of people living with the pain and heartache of losing loved ones during the COVID pandemic. And today, I'd like to ask you something specifically about that period of our lives that surfaced a global anxiety in society, where we saw big eruptions of blame and emotion related to its cause. As the pandemic spread, the global anxiety expressed a need to identify an enemy as the reason for the pandemic. How do we make sense of something like that? Clearly, there have been some thoughts about why is this arisen, where it's arisen, and some quite paranoid trains of thought about that as well. But I think one of the areas we know from a society point of view, it has ignited a lot of hatred and hostility of people from particularly Chinese culture who have experienced a lot of 
prejudice, attacks, physical attacks, verbal attacks, as if they are representatives of COVID. And I think there is something about fear that obviously it was a very frightening experience for all of us, particularly in the early stages of the COVID pandemic when we didn't know what we were dealing with. And I think that's really an important key, fear of the unknown. When we don't know what we're dealing with, we get very frightened. And then often a response to our fear is to project it in the form of hatred and anger onto other people. What then happens when our uncertainties and fears become contagious? So then it's on a big international scale, China somehow becomes responsible for COVID because that particular pandemic arose there. There are other pandemics which have arisen in different places in the world. But that obviously has, has been a real focus. That's been really difficult, I think, for people to deal with. And one of the things that happens if we hate on a massive scale like that, we tend to deplete ourselves of our own autonomy and our way of thinking about things. So our our hatred, our difficult feelings are a really important part of what we are and what we're about. And it's really important that we are able to digest and think about it. And it doesn't just exist during critical moments does it? From what I'm, I'm understanding from what you're saying, fear and you use the word hate. I mean, it's almost difficult to say because it it's something that, you know, we don't like to associate with ourselves. But but fear and hate is part of being a human being. And, and we can see it erupt on, on massive scale when there's a global anxiety. But if it's part of our everyday life, part of being in an organisational life, what do we do with that? How do we cope with things that we don't like to see in an organisation or, or out in the world? What do we do with the stuff that's inside of ourselves? One of the things that's important is to own it a bit. If we all own a little bit of our hatred, then it's going to be less of a, a massive eruption when it happens to come out in an explosive way, for example. So there's something about thinking, yes, that is irritating me. You know, it hasn't got to hatred yet, but there's something irritating that's growing there. I think there's something about being open to engaging with people. So, you know, this person is getting under my skin for some reason. Am I able to talk to them, to learn about them? But not address the reason directly, though? Not necessarily talk about the fact they're getting under my skin if they're a colleague, but actually just spend a little bit of time getting to know them. And sometimes that can actually shift things quite a bit. I think it's really important when there's significant unhappiness in a work environment to talk about that. And rather than let things build up to a point where it's not sustainable or manageable, to think, okay, what can we do that's different? And also, what are the constraints on us at this moment in time? Or What are the kind of limitations of what we can do to change things in the workplace, for example? I think the more people feel they have a bit of a choice and can influence their work environments, the better they feel. How can leaders, wherever they are, Jan, outside of psychiatry, help to ameliorate these emotions, help people to talk rather than become up themselves in the hubbub and the intensity of the emotion? One of the issues that may crop up sometimes is that leaders 
can tend to be vilified because they're seen very much as the people who are controlling organisations in a top-down way. And so you can get into this almost tit-for-tat, this person's telling us to do this, we don't like it, and actually we're not going to do it in the way that it's expected to be done. So I think that's a really big drain on resources. That's really interesting that you observe people feeling ruled or curbed in the environments that you work in. Certainly the NHS, with which I'm most familiar, it happens an awful lot that there's a command and control input there that actually does cut the legs off sometimes the clinical leaders, the consultants, psychiatrists, they're actually leading the clinical enterprise. So there can be tensions between managers looking at numbers of patients seen and clinicians saying, actually, I do need to spend a bit more time with some of these patients because I need to hear what they have to say. So what can leaders do about it? I think it's really important to recognise that that is there and to look at some of the different forces that might be playing on that. It's quite strongly felt in psychiatry, I think, where we try and take psychological issues, social issues, as well as biological issues into account. There's often a commercial input as well. So I think there's something about rebalancing and think about, yes, there is a market part here, but there's also something about human values that we need to really regard as important. And how might we pay better regard to the human values? Is there anything we can learn, Jan, from the field of psychiatry? I think it's really important for leaders to engage with the people that they're working with, the people that they're leading, to think about the different areas that people are struggling with and to listen very carefully to that, listen up the organisation. And also to try and appreciate the values, what brings people to work, why they come into that area, what's brought them there. It's also important to allow people to develop in their work environments and to really encourage that. And again, I think leaders are well placed if they think about who really wants to develop themselves, what attributes do they bring? How can they be supported in actually growing in themselves in work? Because people are learning and growing, they tend to be much more satisfied. And what more can leaders do to better get alongside people, give them space, as you say, to grow in themselves? Well, I think one of the things that leaders can very usefully do is facilitating reflective practice groups with colleagues to actually sit down with people allow them to speak openly and allow them to think about what's going on in an open, examined kind of way. And one of the ways of doing that, I think, is to have some meetings or maybe parts of meetings where there isn't actually an agenda. Let's check in. Let's see how people are. All of us go to many meetings with lots of agenda items and business to get through, which is very task focused. Actually being able to step back from the tasks and having some thinking space is really helpful for people to bring ideas forward, to bring innovations forward, to not be too busy that they can't think. And also to recognise that that thinking space is very valuable. And really, you know, that's where creativity can emerge. It's where connections between people can emerge, which can be incredibly powerful. It's where distress can be expressed as well. That group working together can be so much more powerful than individuals. We feel connected. They can really make a difference. I recall some time ago you spoke about a project where a group of people were being, you used the word earlier, vilified in society, and they really needed support. I believe the programme focused on helping them 
through the conflict and tensions they were experiencing by getting alongside them and simply talking and listening. Do you recall that project? Yes, that's that's correct. I think you're referring to an organisation, Street Talk, a charity that we've spoken about. Yeah. Yeah. And I've been associated with them for some years now. And they have some charitable funding to provide a therapy service for women working as street prostitutes. And so interesting that they are such a marginalised group of people. Many of them have very significant mental health problems. Drug addiction features quite large in, in this group of people. And they have a very, very difficult life, often have been abused traumatised and got into difficulties with the law for various reasons. And so it's amazing, this organisation, Street Talk, very ambitious project set up to try and engage these very marginalised people in therapy. And what they found was the process of engagement was a really long period of time compared with other people that come for therapy. The therapists used to go into the probation hostels where these women stayed and just hang around and be seen and gradually get to be familiar figures so that people were less frightened of them. And then people would sometimes open up and start working very effectively in therapy. So it's, it's been noted as the therapy of presence. Just being there for people is really important in empathic, accepting compassionate way that doesn't vilify them. A number of women who've come through that program are now very effective, able people contributing in various ways to society and and really doing well. And what can we learn, Jan, in everyday life in organisations about that gradual process of being present for people? Because the tendency can be, let's set something up. (laughs) Let's create a new endeavour. And as you were speaking then, I was just wondering, what can we be drawing on your experience from Street Talk that is informative for the everyday life in organisations where people, to a very different extent, feel scapegoated? They might have taken a decision that landed on pretty rocky ground and the home they thought they had in an organisation is now not so familiar. It's not so welcoming. I I think that's a situation that many leaders would recognise. Is there anything we can learn from Street Talk? There's something really important about the presence that was really, really helpful. That somebody, a familiar figure, goes in every week. It's very regular. And I think there's something about that. You're quite right. This can happen an awful lot with organisations. They've ticked the box almost rather than thought, what difference can we make? So I was thinking about the emotional labour that's involved in working with people in organisations. There's a move towards, for example, trying to develop open dialogue in psychiatric practice. Open dialogue in organisations is really, really helpful. It's important to hear what people have to say. People have thoughts, ideas, things they want to bring into fruition. And if we don't listen to those, then people gradually get switched off. So something about keeping keeping things alive in in some way, I think, keeping them moving, helping people perhaps review the purpose of the organisations they're working with. Is this fulfilling what I thought it was going to be when I came here? Are we getting too bogged down in admin? Have Have we got enough creative time to work with people? Trying to think about how groups of people work together and 
can help things move forward is useful. Now, taking your point about working together in groups, I wonder if we have a tendency sometimes to leave people on the edge, to leave them marginalised, because if they're on the edge, then we are not. Why is that? Why do we leave people on the edge? It's a really interesting question. It's a really interesting concept. I think one of the ways of understanding this is the use of projection, that many of us take a part of ourselves that is, for whatever reason, not acceptable to us at a conscious or unconscious level, and we put it outside of ourselves, sometimes ascribing that feeling to other people around us, for example, hatred or bullying. We have kind of parts of ourselves which are difficult to own, that are on the margins, that don't fit very well with our view of the world. So something about projecting that into other people and to counter that, try to find out about them, to be interested, to be curious about people, not just let a situation where some difficult emotions involved lie left alone. Because eventually, if that person is a member of staff, for example, they'll probably feel that rift and start to move out of the organisation, start to marginalise themselves. And they can do that in other ways. They might stop coming to work in, in a physical sort of sense, or they might start stop coming to work in an emotional sense, stop bringing themselves as a person into work. And they might actually leave the organisation, which is a severe form of marginalisation. Quite often, what you see in organisations is a situation where people get marginalised, where they move out and don't come back. So really important to engage with this in organisations, but also I think the wider issue is really how we engage with that in society on a much bigger scale, how we engage with people on the margins. Think about their experiences, which, as I said before, actually many of our own experiences projected into them, they actually belong to us all. And we need to collectively own those and collectively think about how we manage those, how we digest them, how we respond to them. What's sitting behind the marginalising or the scapegoating that people experience in community and in organisation? It goes back to a, a, a bit we spoke about earlier about projection, about fear of the unknown. And there's a danger of us continuing and pushing people away by our own projections. And if we don't get to know them, and get to listen to what they have to say, there's a danger it may be increasingly marginalised. I think some people are more vulnerable to this than others. And vulnerable people are? People who are different in some way, who stand out in society. Hence the kind of efforts to try and engage diverse people in groups in different ways. And I think that's really important. And really important to hear what they have to say about their journey and how they can be helped back to join in with people. There is something about the importance of recognising difference and the different skills and attributes that people bring to a group, to an organisation, and what their experiences might add to the richness of our understanding. So really valuing that, really valuing the difference, valuing their journey through life, and also um, trying to understand how they've got to where they are. Can you say a bit more about the reasoning process you're describing here? Are you speaking about a more complex way of seeing things? 
I think we're going into a two-dimensional kind of thinking process there. So it is something about moving into a more complex way of thinking about things, three-dimensional, even further dimensions than that, that are operating. What, what are influencing these factors here? What you often see in organisations is one person gets scapegoated and then they leave. And then there's another person that takes their place quite quickly. So clearly there's something going on in the system there that isn't very healthy. Is there something that's happening unconsciously that people are getting driven out and we're losing really good people? And they're actually experiencing loss and blockages in their own creativity as well. Some people work better in a sort of fairly private space. Other people like to work with, you know, very engaged in a team. So sometimes helping people find their place at the table in a metaphorical kind of sense is really important. What's the role of senior teams in helping people to find their place? I think the top team, I think the culture comes down the organisation really. And clearly the values in the leaders in the organisation do percolate down. We may have to go into some quite uncertain territory. And I think... Again, leaders might be quite fearful of that and want to step back from it. It's easier to go back to the tick box. It's more reassuring in an immediate sort of sense, but also quite frustrating if you have a vision of how things might develop beyond that. Yes, it's moving into unknown territory, away from the, the shopping list, moving into truly looking at the experiences of different people that can feel rather scary, can't it? It's about human beings and their their preferences and their unpredictability, which we can't really control for. That's right. We can't control for it at all, but we can try and help people be their best, to bring themselves to work as best they can and to grow in their work environments. Really important to recognise the emotional labour of being a leader and for leaders to also make sure they have some space to think about what they're doing to reflect on things because it, it's very exhausting it can be very tiring also very exciting fantastic <laughs> and and Jen from our conversation today could you highlight a, f- a few points that from from your experience from your world leaders could think about prioritizing so for example what might they be thinking about that could make a difference to better understanding the experiences of their colleagues? I think one of the points I was thinking about was what's under the surface? What's going on here under the surface? Are we understanding that? Do we know about it? How do we understand the dynamics between groups and teams that work together? How do you understand the dynamics of a person's understanding of me as a leader? for example. And one of the concepts we use in psychotherapy is transference. Transference. And so transference is when somebody brings into a consultation psychotherapy feelings and emotions that are unresolved from their earlier life. And there's something about thinking, how is this person seeing me at the moment? And does that sit with my impression of myself? Or is it very different to how I view myself? So somebody might be very frightened of an authority figure, for example. And I may regard myself as not very authoritarian in my approach, but they are picking that up in a different sort of way. And I think just having some space about what what can I do differently? Can I open up my mind? Can I listen as a leader to ideas that are put on the table? Or is my tendency to just dismiss them? How do I make space for some open, creative, innovative thought? 
to come forward. So that dialogue where people bring their professional backgrounds, but also are open to other ideas. Trust, openness in communication, bearing in mind that everybody's working hard. Most people do try and do their best at work and really recognising that. And also there might be problems going on at the same time. And there's a space to talk about those in confidence in the right kind of place at the right time. Thanks, Jan. And finally, I've got a question around what's going to help leaders frame good leadership differently? Perhaps frame it as important that conversations really do matter, that people really do have different experiences and they can feel scapegoated or marginalised. What could a leader be saying to themselves as they walk through the door in the morning? or switch on their computer that's going to help them realise that at the end of the day, we are all people trying to do our very best at work. What would help them stay ever more attuned to the humanity in the organisation? Something about reflecting on our own kind of journey that's really important there. Um, Reflecting on sometimes when we might have felt uncomfortable and vulnerable when the organisational outfit isn't fitting the organisational culture, the people in the organisation in a very good way. And how do we talk about that? How do we remedy that? Thanks, Jan. That's a wonderful way to end. And it takes takes me right back to the start of the conversation today, where you said that a key part of the role of the psychiatrist is to bring all of yourself into work, into the job. Thank you, Jan. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for our sixth episode. Take a look at our show notes for more links and information. And be sure to join us for our next episode when I chat to Claire Dabro-Haling, Chief Scientific Officer at Sandoz and a member of the Sandoz Executive Committee. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.